right, let's, let's bow together for prayer and uh, then, then we will begin. Father, thank you for this good day that you've given to us. We thank you for every blessing of life. We are so grateful for Jesus, our precious Savior and Lord, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, sure and certain knowledge that he's coming again. And thank you that we can fellowship together with brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can have good fellowship around the tables, enjoy a delicious meal, and we pray you'll use it to strengthen and nourish our bodies and bless our Bible study time together this afternoon. We love you and adore you, and we are grateful to you for all things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We left off last time. We were almost done with the first three verses. God rests. So I'm certainly not going to go back and review that. I just want to finish uh, that that section. And what I want to say is very simply this. Hebrews 4, Hebrews chapter 4, tells us of the rest that Christ gives those who trust in Him. And he tells us that Israel hardened her heart and missed the soul rest that God offered her. And so we are reminded specifically in chapter 4, verse 7, the author of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that is a quote from the 15th, uh, from the 95th Psalm. So, um, with that in mind, we, we know if we trust in Christ, then we enter into the rest that he offers, and it's a rest for the soul for all of eternity. Uh, there is a now rest. That's the rest that you have in your hearts right now, that assurance, that comfort that you have of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's almost difficult to put into words But if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, so you know there is someone there, not a something, there is someone there that gives you that soul peace, that soul rest. Uh, Jesus said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That is that soul rest that we have now. And we also know the scripture tells us there is a future rest that comes from being in his presence. Don't misunderstand the word rest and think that means floating on clouds and strumming a harp. That is not it at all. But there is a soul rest in his presence where there is no more sin. Not mine or yours or anybody else's. There's no more strife. There's no more conflict. There's no more warfare. There's no more hatred or hostility. There is only the peace and the joy that will be ours in the presence of Jesus. And that gives us a lot to look forward to. A lot to look forward to. Gives us a great assurance. It's not a, the rest of Christ is not a lazy sleep, but it is a deep sense of it is well with my soul, which, as you know, happens to be my favorite hymn. It is well with my soul. That, to me, summarizes what the rest of God means for us. Okay? So that finishes 
verses 1 through 3. So now we're going to Eden. Have you, have you ever wanted to go to Eden? All right, well, let's hop on the bus and here we go. Verse 4 of chapter 2, we're going to read all the way to verse 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. All right, we'll stop there. Eden. So far, up to this point in the Scripture, there has been one Hebrew word used for God, and that's been Elohim. And we talked about that extensively earlier Elohim appears, has appeared 35 times already. And remember, we're just barely into chapter 2. Already the word Elohim's appeared 35 times. Elohim is the majestic creator of the universe. God the creator. But in verse 4 of chapter 2, the name for God changes in the Hebrew. And it changes to what I've written on the board, Yahweh Elohim. Notice that it says, Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God. Why the change of names? Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God who relates to and redeems his people. It's a personal name. The personal covenant name of God who relates to and redeems his people. Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim. The only place in chapters 2, 3, and 4 that Yahweh, Elohim is not used, and I find this to be fascinating, is in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, when the serpent and Eve consciously avoid the personal name of God as she is being lured towards sin. Isn't that interesting? The personal word for God is not used in that section of chapter 3. Yahweh Elohim combines the Creator, the Creator God, 
and the covenant redeemer aspects of God, putting the two together into one magnificent name, Yahweh Elohim, creator, redeemer. Yahweh creator, Elohim, redeemer. Yahweh Elohim, creator, redeemer, Lord God. Now, in verses 4 through 17 of chapter 2, we're going to deal with man's nature, man's position, and man's responsibility to God. Man's nature, man's position, and man's responsibility to God. All that in these few verses. Now, there is another Hebrew word that is very significant in the book of Genesis. And so, it is toldot, which means in English, generations or account. Generations or account. These are the generations of man from blah, 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 blah. Or this is the account of man from, or this is the account of this event. And that word is found many times in Genesis, and it always marks the major divisions of the book. Therefore, we find in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And this word, toldot, account, will appear numerous more times in Genesis, and it marks major divisions to the book. You'll not see it again until chapter 5. We read here in verses 4 through 17 another narrative about creation. It is not a second creation account. It is a retelling of the creation of man. It centers on a localized scene moving from the cosmos to a garden in Eden, in the east. Everything here happens in Eden, in this passage that I just read. So in verses 5 and 6, we read about the earth, the untended earth. Bushes and small plants have not yet appeared. They are post-fall, not here yet. Fall meaning not the season, but the fall of man into sin. The plants of the field will grow under Adam's cultivation after the fall. Bushes in the Hebrew text here are really equated with weeds. We think of our nice shrubbery we've got in our yard, not quite the same meaning. The untended creation needs man to rule and subdue it. And so we're getting there. In, in verse 7, we read something of man's nature. Adam, the man, Adam, in Hebrew, Adam means man. Adam, Adam, is formed by God. And in, in the seventh verse, the Lord God formed man. Yahweh Elohim formed Adam, formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The word formed in the Hebrew indicates very careful design. It would be likened somewhat, if you can make comparisons, to someone here who perhaps is a woodworker 
and creates something from wood very, very carefully. It's complex. It's not, it's not like building a birdhouse out of a three or four pieces of wood, slapping it together and sticking it in the yard. It's something more complex, more involved. And that's what this word formed means. Complex, involved, a very careful design. So I think you know just looking at ourselves and understanding the marvel and the wonder of of our human bodies that we are very carefully designed by God. He didn't just slap us together and say, okay, get going. He carefully designed uh we, what does the psalmist say in one, Psalm 139? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So the word formed lets us know that. There is divine intention. I mean, God, this is a, the intent of God is to create man very carefully and perfectly. And the Lord God formed the man, Ha-Adam, the man, Ha-Adam, out of dust from the ground, and the word dust, uh, the word ground is ha-adama. Ha-adama. Ha-adam is man. Ha-adama is the ground. He formed man from the ground, the dust of the earth. And so, in the very name of man is that from which he was formed. If you look at chapter 3, verse 19, it says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground... Adama, ha Adama, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. We'll get there eventually. Now, man's nature. God formed careful design. God's creation. Also, as we think about Adam, not only is he God formed, but he's God breathed. So Adam is God formed and God breathed. This picture of God breathing his very breath into the nostrils of the man speaks of intimacy, a warmly personal face-to-face intimacy likened to a kiss. When husband and wife kiss one another, that is an act of intimacy. And in the same way, God breathes up close and personal, not from a distance, not a hurricane, but up close and personal God breathes into the nostril uh, of man. And I think that speaks volumes because you know and I know God had the power to do this any way he wanted to. But he chose to create man in intimacy by the breath, his very breath going into the nostrils of man. I think that's extremely significant. This is an act of giving as well as an act of making. It's an act of giving God, giving of himself as well as an act of God making man. It's an act of self-giving. God's giving of himself. As he shares his breath with Adam, picture, if you can, the, the shared breath between Adam and his maker. Wow, it just almost is like, okay, my mind is too peanut sized to get my arms around that, but it speaks of utter amazement to me. So Adam is God formed, Adam is God breathed, and Adam is a living being. 
a living being. The Hebrew word is nepesh hayah. I don't know that that really matters to anybody, but it is <laughs> nepesh hayah. Uh, God breathed life into Adam, unlike other animals. There is on the part of some today to want to equate animals with man. And the Bible won't let you do that. Now, you can... I'm all for love and care for animals. I've had a dog, dogs most of my life. I love pets, but but I want to tell you, I don't want to insult your cat or your dog, but our pets are not equal to us in, in no sense, shape, form, or fashion. They're not equal to us as much as we may love them. God said a living being. Man is a living being and the very breath of God was breathed into man. Nothing like that for anything else in all creation. So we have within us, Adam had within him and we have within us, incredible potential for glory. But also for disaster, as we well know. Now, as we look beginning at verse 18 and moving on through the verses that we read, let's look at man's position. In Eden. In Eden in the east. Now, what does that mean in Eden in the east? It means from the perspective of Moses as he wrote in Sinai, Eden in the east. Eden's to the east of where Moses was when he wrote this. Eden in the east. So the garden was likely in Mesopotamia, Tamia, likely modern day Iraq. I've never been to Iraq. Some of you have, and I've certainly seen it on television, as we all have. And if that's where the Garden of Eden was located, I think we get the picture of what it meant when God cast man out of the garden and uh, that whole place fell apart. It sure doesn't look like a garden now, does it? At least most of it. So Eden is the geographical area in which the garden was placed. So there was an area called Eden, and in Eden there was a garden. Now, Eden's abundant river watered the garden, flowed out, and separated in the headwaters of four rivers, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. Two of those, we know where they are. The Tigris and the Euphrates, they're still there. Gihon and Pishon, don't know where they are. My less than intelligent guess is that when the flood came, they were affected and they are gone. I mean, that's the only thing I can, I can suppose to their disappearance. So the garden has the life-giving presence of God. Eden in Hebrew, do I know what Eden in Hebrew means? Delight. Fits perfectly. Means delight. The garden was extravagant for the eye and the body. Adam had everything he needed. Everything he could ever hope for or wish for. 
naked Adam, and he was, remember, still naked. Naked Adam lacked for nothing except a companion, but he doesn't know that yet. He's made in the image of God. Life has been kissed into him by God. He is in the midst of perfection. He had the blessing of God and the presence of God. And Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. That quote is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not me. Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. I like that. Now let's talk about man's responsibility as we finish this section. There are two trees. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gives his commandment. At first, there are two aspects to that. There is God's permissiveness and God's prohibition. God's permissiveness is eat any tree that you want to, including the tree of life. You got everything you want. Eat any, eat from any of the trees. God's permissive word. Then God's prohibitive word, do not eat of the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, where we sit or stand today, we, we think, what is wrong with you, Adam, and with Eve? You had everything. Why did you have to eat, oops, of the one tree that God said, don't eat from it? I don't know the answer to that question, except we're going to read about it. But then I think, how many times has God said to me, don't do that? And I've done it anyway. Am I alone? Probably not. I know you better than you think I do. Yeah, I know. So the temptation that comes to Adam and Eve is to seek wisdom without reference to God, without reference to the Word of God. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should. In regard to moral decisions, moral autonomy, Adam and Eve are going to decide what is right without reference to God's revealed will. That's what's coming. We, we know most of us have read the story. We know what's coming. Adam and Eve, who is coming, desired wisdom, but they sought it outside the word and the will of God. They usurped God's role in determining right and wrong. So here's the heart of original sin. And, and that is to sidestep God and His Word. And moral autonomy brings death when it's done sidestepping God and His Word. So 2018, the day in which you and I live, most people want to decide right and wrong apart from the Bible. It's really the truth, isn't it? Our hope is to trust God and His Word. But we're going to get to the fall very soon. So let's look at verses 18 through 25. Let me read it, say a few words, and then we'll have to pick up there next time. I don't know where the time goes, but it goes. All right, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. We read about that in chapter 1. 
But now, he brought them to the man, Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Okay, let's stop there. We won't finish that today, but let's start. Here is again divine initiative. It is at the root of everything we see here. God's initiative. The Lord God said, verse 18. The Lord God formed, verse 19. The Lord God caused, verse 21. The Lord God made, verse 22. He's in control. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, creator, covenant maker, takes the initiative to shape man and woman and their relationship. Verse 18, not good. It is not good that man should be on the not good is strong language. It is not good, and God meant that strongly. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, get this. The observation and the declaration of Adam's need is all God's. God did not consult with Adam. Adam may not have even known he was alone. I mean, he's just been created, so he may not even know he's alone. And remember, in Eden, he had everything. Everything he needed. Every provision is his, including every animal who is there, and they're all at that point submissive to him. God was not responding to a complaint from Adam. I mean, Adam didn't say, hey God, you know, something's missing here. This is all God's initiative. God said it's not good. That's God's sovereign, unilateral assessment of the situation. And so he addresses it immediately. God acts. I will create a helper, not a term of servility. It is the same Hebrew word used to describe God as Israel's helper. In fact, you find an example of that in Exodus 18.4, where Moses referred to God as his helper I assure you, in no sense, shape, form, or fashion did the Bible ever use that word to mean a menial servant. Okay? So Adam's helper is not a weak woman by any stretch of one's imagination. The function of the helper is complementary to the man's. A helper suitable for him. Literally, that could be translated... Like opposite him. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. Physically, yes indeed. Opposites. Have you ever noticed how often in marriages opposites attract? How a man and a woman who are very, very different from each other are attracted to each other, become husband and wife, and she's one way, he's another. And you think, how in the world does that work? That's the way God intended it. Here we go. So uh, that that's... Interesting. Adam's counterpart. 
she shares his nature. They're both created in God's image. And as his matching opposite, she would supply what was lacking in him. So God said, help is on the way, so to speak. She will complete what God has for Adam to do through what God has for her to do. Now, first God makes Adam aware that he's alone. How does he do that? Verses 19 through 20. Okay, I'll finish with this. Verses 19 through 20, the naming of the menagerie of the animals is a big task. Adam has the sovereign naming function. God gives it to him. Now, I'm going to pick up there next time, but I want you to think, here, here's, here's where we're going to go with this, uh, the way this is worded. When Adam names the animals, he is not just naming what they look like, but he is able to discern what they are like. And that's how he selects their name. Now, the example of that. It wouldn't have been this in Hebrew, but doesn't the term monkey fit? Donkey? Elephant? Well, we'll have some fun with that next time. Can you imagine the enjoyment Adam got with, yeah, elephant? It's amazing to me. Um, you know, one of those instant replay moments, if God allows that when we get to heaven, I don't know if that'll happen, but anyway. Okay, we'll stop there. I can hardly believe that tomorrow is March. I mean, what in the world has happened to 2018? I, I don't know. Thank you for being here. Uh, have a wonderful week, and let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty the power, the magnificence of your word, we are very grateful and pray that we'll contemplate and think about what we've read today and that it will be a blessing to us and encourage us and inspire us as we more and more each day place our faith and trust completely in you. Bless us now as we go from this place. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you all.